Hello and welcome to Empire Builders, the place for entrepreneurs, business owners and experts who want to build an epic empire. I'm Nick James and thanks for joining me here today. Stephen Bartlett, welcome to Expert Empires. Energy's incredible in here, isn't it? I was ill-prepared for this level of energy. I'll try, and, <laughs> I'll try and meet you. How does it feel to be interviewee rather than interviewer for once? Interesting. Uh, I'm slightly uncomfortable, but also exciting because um, I've, I've sat there with 200 of the smartest people in the world from a mul- sort of a multitude of industries. So it's only when I'm interviewed that I realize how much I've learned from speaking to them. So mm. let's see. Let's see. Yeah. Um, you share a lot about your upbringing and how growing up there wasn't a lot of money around in your family. Something that fascinates me is you hear these amazing stories of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs who seemingly have come from nothing. And then you often hear stories of exorbitant wealth and those children amounted to nothing. Do you think your upbringing and the financial situation was an advantage or a disadvantage? I think it creates an insecurity. And what you've, what you've heard there, where someone who's born without money can become exceptionally wealth, wealthy, but then also someone that's born into money can become exceptionally wealthy, is both for the same reason. It's because of an insecurity. And I've sat there with them. I've got friends whose dads were billionaires. And I know myself to know enough that insecurity is one of the greatest motivators you'll ever find. So in the case of one of the biggest companies in this country, The son of the founder is incredibly driven to the point that he's built his own billion-dollar business because of the insecurity of trying to live in his father's footsteps. And he always, for 10 years growing up, he was always dad's son. And that created this huge insecurity, this feeling of inadequacy in him, which turned into motivation. Eddie Hearn said the same thing. Eddie Hearn, the famous boxing promoter, his dad, Barry, built the business. He was driving to school in a Rolls Royce every day. And feeling insecure, he was always Barry's son. And he wanted to be his own man. That was his drive. And it's an insecurity on both sides of it. And that's what happened in my life, where I was pretty much the only black kid in an all-white school, 1992 in Devon, other than my brothers and sisters. Not only was I the only black kid, I'm trying to figure out why I was different. We were also a poor family in a middle-class area. And what that means in reality, bear in mind, the way we attribute the value of anything is in the context in which we see it. So on a menu, if there's three steaks, then they've done the studies, the most expensive steak, you think bougie, a lot, right? Middle steak, you think good choice. The bottom one, you think there must be something wrong. You remove the other two steaks, and then people will have no problem picking the least priced steak. In a world full of Nokias, you know, an iPhone is amazing, and being a Nokia is fine. But in a world full of iPhones, being a Nokia is will make you full of shame. And I was a Nokia in a street full of iPhones, you know, perfect picket fence neighbors. Our house, six foot grass, smash windows, half of the back of the house knocked down because my mom thought we had the money to build a swimming pool. <laughs> you got to pay your mortgage and then get the swimming pool, mother. But she thought we could build a swimming pool, knock the house down. It was some cowboy builder that had sold the idea you could build a swimming pool for like a grand. Then the house never got reassembled. And up until the point that I left at 18, I felt shame. I thought the the cure of all of my problems as a young man would be to get money, and as my book is called, to become a happy, sexy millionaire. So my entire orientation in life, as was the case with my billionaire son friend, was to get the bag, to get the money. And then I thought everything would be solved because the thing that had invalidated me, and it's the case for all of us, the thing that invalidated you when you were younger will be the thing you most seek validation from as an adult. And I was no different. 
So it's dangerous, though. And I, you see this in a lot in first-generation immigrants when their kids become so fixated on becoming doctor, lawyer, dentist, because the parents, were, their challenge in life was survival. So they saw that and go, okay. So they come to this country and they become doctor, lawyer. I sat there with one of them this morning in my office. And she goes, but I felt after 10 years of being this, working in this city as an investment banker, I felt this sense of emptiness inside me. I realized I'm actually an artist. But that insecurity that I've inherited from my mother made me go off and become investment banker. So here I am, Steve, working in your marketing business now as a creative director. So how would you, um, you met my two kids. Yeah, they're, two kids. They're nine and yeah. 13. Um, you know, they have a pretty good lifestyle. How do you how do you balance it? My concern is always that if I give them everything on a plate, they won't yeah. value it. Yeah. So how how do you how how would you approach that? So I think all everything we believe is based on evidence that we've attained. Sometimes the evidence is wrong, sometimes it's right, but it's all subjective. And the important piece of evidence that my family also gave me that I think made me an entrepreneur was anything that I have is a direct consequence of my actions. They didn't do this intentionally. So by the age of 10 years old, and you look at it and you go, why have we got four siblings? And the other three went to university, went to like LSE, really good universities. The bottom one was a dropout that ended up becoming an entrepreneur, dropped out of school, got kicked, um, got kicked out of school, dropped out of university after one lecture. What happened? Well, our family really, really changed by the time I got to 10 years old. My, my older siblings knew Christmases, birthdays, they even knew holidays. All I knew was living in a smashed up house, feeling insecure. And when I woke up, my mum wasn't there. My dad wasn't there. And when I went to sleep, my mum wasn't there and my dad wasn't there. So 10 years old, I just stopped going to school. I, I have this shame because all the kids have the Rockports and the Fred Perry. I, I had Rockports. I wanted them. I, I, <laughs> I, I had to have Rockports at school. Yeah. It was like the shoe to Exactly. Wear. And I really wanted them. But mine aren't going to appear under the tree because I didn't get birthday presents. So I really want something. I really, really want it. I have this huge void of independence, which is telling me the only way you get anything is your own actions. So off I go sell anything around the house. You know, my first deal, you know, when I'm thinking about all the deals I did to make money, started a business at 14, 16, I, I hear the school discussing getting vending machines. I leave the common room and go to the computer and email vending machine companies. We do the first deal ever where we get all of the machines for free and we make a profit. By 16, 17, I'm running all the school trips in our sixth form. I have my own wall with one of my vending machines sat in front of it where I'm coming up with events, start of summer party, Midsummer party, Halloween party, end of summer party. We're going to Alton Towers. I did the, you know, and it was that because I had that void of independence, which is what I think any parent can do. I created that evidence my, in my own mind, what my parents accidentally did, that anything I am to have in my life is a direct consequence of me. And then you start building evidence. So you try something. I try the vending machine thing and it pays off. And that evidence is what we call self-belief. Like a lot of people think self-belief is standing in front of a mirror and saying affirmations. I can prove to you that's not how belief works. I, I said this uh, a couple of days ago. You know, if, I, if I held your, someone you love at gunpoint and I said, I'm going to pull the trigger if you don't believe that I'm Jesus. Could you actually believe that I was Jesus or would you have to lie? So everything's on the line and you still can't choose your beliefs. So what makes you think you can stand up in front of a mirror and just choose to believe in yourself? But if I started levitating and I started turning water into wine across all of your desks, you go, this motherfucker is Jesus. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And the same applies for the belief you have in yourself. It's all evidence-based, whether that evidence is wrong or right. So the way you go and get evidence 
of what, who you are and what you're capable of is taking one step at a time out of your comfort zone. Like I, I was forced to because my parents weren't there and I wanted the rock ports. And you get to 18 years old and I'm, I've got the confidence and self-belief to drop out of university to start a business in technology that I've never done before. And email investors at 3 a.m. raising investment, that came from that evidence. It came from that void. It came from abandonment. Very good answer. I think that deserves a round of applause. <laughs> hey, real quick, if you've been listening to the Empire Builders podcast for any length of time, you'll know that I do not run ads on this podcast. And what you should also know about me is that I only partner with companies who I absolutely 100% believe in. And so I'm making an exception because of my partnership and my loyalty to Keep. So since 2010, I've been using Keep, which was previously known as Infusionsoft, to automate all the sales and marketing in my business, deliver world-class experience to my clients, run e-commerce reports, manage affiliates, partners, and loads more. I really believe that Keep is the best CRM on the planet for small businesses, for entrepreneurs that are building their empire. Many of my guests on this podcast use it and pretty much all of my closest friends in the industry also use it. That should speak volumes. So uh, Infusionsoft recently rebranded to Keep, K-E-A-P, and what they've also done is brilliantly made it even more affordable, even more usable for businesses that are at different stages of their journey. So go and get a free demo. All you need to do is go to keep.com, that's K-E-A-P, keep.com forward slash empire builders. And by using that link, I've negotiated the best possible deal for empire builders subscribers. So go to keep.com forward slash empire builders. You get a free demo. And when you go through that unique link, it means you'll get the best possible deal because you're a subscriber of this podcast. So let's get back to the show. Uh, as I was sharing with you uh, just upstairs before we came on, um, I've got a podcast, Empire Builders. Um, I want to talk about podcasts and Diary of a CEO. Um, raise your hand if you listen to Diary of a CEO. Raise your hand. Fucking hell. Hi. It's a lot of people. Fucking hell. There you go. It's a lot um, more than last year. This, <laughs> <laughs> this week um, just crossed 10 million downloads. 10 million downloads. Yeah. A month. You're crazy. Um, That's my team. I want to thank them as well because they, <laughs> nothing without yeah, You just team. ask questions. They're the ones that yeah, yeah, make, they it, make it, it yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, When you first started Die Over CEO, did you ever imagine that it would become what it is today? I've got to be honest. You know, a lot of people say bullshit in hindsight to sound impressive, but I'd have to say no in this case. I remember so well saying to my team, I remember, I met, so I firstly remember looking at the download number and we were getting 120 downloads a month. And I was like, whoa, people are listening to me talk to myself in my bedroom. This is wild. And then I said to my team, if we can get 1000 downloads an episode, we're going to, we're all going to go on holiday. And then when I was at social chain, I said, if we get 10,000 downloads on a, on one single episode, we're going to Vegas. Yesterday, yesterday we announced we're getting 10 million a month. And it's where, like, where are they going now? <laughs> <laughs> um, but the crazy part is, and I uploaded the graph to my LinkedIn two years ago. We were getting 120. It was two years ago, and I posted this as well. You can see the Spotify data. Two years ago, it's when we were getting 120. 2019, we were getting 120 a month. 
it's everything in life is slow, then it's fast. That's the laws of compounding returns. And like my, my friend, Jack, he sent me the graph and said, imagine if we'd quit then, flat line. It goes like this, and then it goes up. He goes, imagine if we'd quit in the first two years when no one was listening. And it's, you know, it's the old meme. You see the guy digging in the, uh, the, the diamond cave, and he turns back at the wrong moment. Everything, every business I've ever started, everything I've ever done, it's super slow, and, it, and then it's fast. And so the thing that keeps you keeping on is that innate, you would do it anyway, regardless of outcome. And it's, fun, it's so funny. That's like a central part of my personal religion is this idea of believing in trajectory and compounding returns that you cannot see. But the best way to describe that in a way that all of you will understand is like, if you don't brush your teeth today, your teeth don't fall out, right? Tomorrow, tomorrow, you're fine. Like you don't brush your teeth. She's going to complain because your breath smells, but you're fine. You don't brush your teeth every day this week. Your teeth are actually fine. You don't brush your teeth all day this month. Your teeth will still be okay. You don't brush your teeth for five years. You're screaming in a dental chair as they rip each tooth out. When did it happen? You didn't see it happen. And that's the laws of compounding returns. Everything in your life, your finances, your health, your intellect, everything, your relationships are currently invisibly compounding for or against you over time. And it, it looks like it's either going one, it's either going up or it's going down. Everything you do, this is why you have to be obsessive about the small stuff. Our religion as a team, if there was one word that we say most often every day is 1%. This obsession about where can we find the marginal gains and obsessing about the small stuff. What that last, that Lewis Capaldi episode that went out the, this week on the Diary of a CEO, I, we were up editing every second of that thumbnail, uh, every, second, uh, every inch of the thumbnail and every second of the trailer till 3 a.m. Every, this is what you think about podcasting. For our team, you think, oh, he sits there, has a conversation. We care about the temp, we measure the temperature of the room, the song that's playing that when the guest arrives. Anything we can control that might give us 1%, we, we, we die, we'd die for it. 101% is 100% improvement. And then when it's compounding, when it's compounding, when, if you have 10,000 10, listeners, that's 10,000 people sharing it. If you have 100,000 listeners, that's 100,000 listeners sharing it. So the rate of growth increases. When you're working in a space that's compounding, like personal brand, audience, marketing, or investing, it's not a 1% gain on a parallel line. It's not like this. It, it's a hockey stick. That's why if we get a 10% growth in our audience now, that's an extra million people. So... It really, really matters. Every percent. That's what defined all of my businesses. It's defined everything I've ever done. It's why when I compete against anyone in any industry, it doesn't matter if they're ahead of us. It's all about how is our trajectory compounding. And we all know if we're going to win probably about two months out because our team care more than you do about the details. That's so, it. So my observation is the mistake most people make is they're trying to find one thing that gives Facts. them 100% growth Facts. rather than 100 things that give them 1% growth. Why do you think that is? The things, so the things that are easy to do are also easy not to do. It's easy to save one pound. So it's also easy not to save one pound. It's easy, not, it's easy to brush your teeth today. So it's also easy not to brush your teeth today. So people don't appreciate that. And it also doesn't seem to matter in the moment. Like I said about not brushing your teeth today, we overlook it because it's invisible today and it's easy not to do. And we go in search of the big things. What can we do? Can we get a new studio? The big things are really, really hard to find. The small things, you can find a hundred of those small things easily. And, and those, are, those are always the easier things to control. So that's what we care about, the smallest things. And when I spoke to Sir David Brailsford, who was responsible for sending the England cycling team to being pretty useless, to being the best cycling team in the world. Let's forget about the doping for a second. 
Let's just forget. Let's just pretend it didn't involve that. But he, he said the same thing. He said, we're the best in the world and we always will be because we care about the smallest things more than any other team. So instead of going into the cycling team and making them cycle in training for 10 more hours, he went into their hotel rooms and felt how soft their mattresses were and thought, can I make their pillows softer? Makes their pillows softer. What can I do in terms of the, the, the amount of water they're drinking and when they're drinking it? The size of the bottles of the water. The tiny things that every other team would overlook. And then he gets 100% better. They win, I think, seven gold medals, won Olympics. And they're the best in the world. Not even close. No one's close. And everyone's looking at them going, how are they doing it? They're cycling just like we are. It's all the stuff you don't see. That's why I said um, when we were upstairs in the green room, I said, no one ever asks me how you build a good podcast. Because I think you ju- they think it's just you sit down and you talk. So I think they don't even know it's an unknown unknown. But it's all, it's all the obsessive 1% for us anyway. Yeah, I think my guess would be part laziness and part lack of belief. People believe that this little thing, the softness of the pillow, how big a difference could that make? Like yeah. you say, if it's easy to do, it's also easy not to do. Mm. Whereas I think people believe if I do something massive, yeah. then it will have a massive effect. I think it's partly laziness and... Partly what's easy to do is also I found, easy not to do. An interesting insight I discovered actually yesterday. So I'll give you this one. It's nice and fresh. I was talking to my, we, we constant, constant. Where's that 1%? Where's the 1%? Is there any marginal gain that we can find? I said to my team yesterday, if you look in the back end of YouTube, it says that 74% of our people that watch our show haven't actually ever subscribed. So 74% watch the diary of a CEO, but have never hit the subscribe button. Why don't we ask them to? Why don't I tell them that? So if you watch the Lewis Capaldi episode, at the start of the episode, I go, it's just, it's 15 seconds. I go, 74% of you guys that watch this regularly haven't subscribed. So if you could do me a big favor and hit the subscribe button, that would be amazing. The bigger the, sh- the, bigger the show, the bigger the guests get. Guess how much that increased my so, view to subscription so rate. You got 10 million downloads yeah. and you never even asked <laughs> anyone to subscribe. I'm pissed off too. Like, <laughs> I said to my team, think about where we would have been. The subscription rate per view went up 350% yesterday. When a video gets 150,000 views on YouTube, we usually get 1.5K subs. When Lewis Capaldi had 150,000 views, we had 6,000 subscribers. Think about how that would have compounded. I would be on like 5 million subscribers right now. Well, th- <laughs> it's th- painful for me too. But think about I'm on 500,000. It's like... Think about this. This is what you should take from it. This guy, for me... Top podcaster in the UK by a mile, probably one of the top podcasters in the world, and he's missed something pretty simple and obvious. And yet, still, <laughs> no, I'm serious. And you will beat yourselves up. Can I say something though about that? Because a lot of you will say in your in your podcasts and your shows and your what you know, you will say and you'll say like and subscribe. Please subscribe. That's not it. If it sounds like something you've heard before, the brain has tuned out of that call to action. So we probably said, oh, hit the subscribe button before. That's not it. The key thing was me saying something you've never heard before. Me going, 74% of you that watch this show regularly have not hit that button. Reciprocity, here it comes. Can you do me a favor if you've ever enjoyed this show and hit the, and here comes the incentive. The bigger the show, this is where I'm making it all about you. The bigger the show, the bigger the guests. It's not any sentence, it's not any call to action. I get that. It's Anytime you, and this comes back to innovation and convention, when you find yourself saying a call to action that everyone has ever heard, that's heard hundreds of times, it's not going to work anymore. It becomes wallpaper to the mind. 
So thinking from yourself from first principles is how you, you get what? I'm going to give you another example from two days ago that I've never shared before. Got a cold call, right? See the phone ring. And I don't like how many people got my, I, I don't know who it is because it's a mobile number. I pick it up. Usually on cold calls, what they go, this is the exchange. Hello, who is it? Hello, is that Stephen? Hi, who's calling? Hello, is that Stephen? Then I know because they didn't want to introduce themselves. Hi, who's calling? And then there's a wait as they like catch their breath because they're going to go for it. Hello, this is David from W. No, 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 no. We're going to sell you windows and doors and conservatories. And boom, I'm gone, right? This cold caller two days ago, I'm sat in the office just as Marie was about to arrive. I think she was actually downstairs when I got the call because I told her on the way down. Pick up the phone. He goes, hi, Stephen, this is a cold call. So if you don't want to take it, just hang up now. That's fine. Love that. Love that. I, Where's my sales team? Bro, I couldn't make notes. I couldn't believe it. Everything I say about how this played out is the truth. I literally went. I went. Well, that's a really good opener. I said to him, "That's a really good opener." I said, what, "What? Tell me what you're selling." He tells me it's this social listening software. I'm on my laptop anyway because I was doing the research for Marie. So I go on it with one hand. I'm like, "Oh, da 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 da." I look at it. Oh, fucking, what am I doing? I look at it. Go on the website I, and I say to him, oh, I think we, we use the opposite tool called Social Blade. And he starts talking, he goes, I love your podcast. We start having this conversation. And then I say to him, do you know, you've inspired me so much. I'm actually going to post this on LinkedIn because that opener was the most, there's something about transparency, which are salespeople we think we're always trying to avoid. But because of that, it's now become the most effective way to sell. He said, this is a cold call. If you don't want to take it, just hang up now. Of course, you're not going to hang up. Well, you know what I mean? It's, it's, he's caught me totally off guard. So that's how you Genius. get in round back sometimes. So Genius. Genius fucking guy. Love it. Everyone's going to be doing that now. Now it's not going to work. So to <laughs> <laughs> so go back to the opposite. Well, yeah, just find what everyone's doing. Do the opposite. Yeah. Um, let's have some fun. Uh-oh. Best guest you've ever had on the podcast. Mo Gaudat, episode 101. Yeah. The happiness say, expert. Yeah. Say it again for everyone so they catch it. Yeah. Episode 101, the happiness the happiness expert. It's called Mo Gaudat. Yeah. Yeah. You were very, very quick to answer that question. Yeah. What is it about that episode that puts it above and beyond everything else? It just had everything that I look for in a great conversation on the diary of a CEO. So you have this really intense emotional story, the loss of his son in a routine operation. You'll, you might, you'll probably cry. I mean, I was, I was, you know, I had big name celebrities DMing me being in tears. You then have someone who's so smart and can teach you from every single lesson, something that you can take into your own life that can make your own life better. Um, and then the other point is when you're doing a podcast, voice and articulation really matters. Someone who can take you up and down and up and down because people are listening while they're walking the dog on the treadmill. So holding them with a good captivating, um, fluctuations in the voice is, is important. It just had everything I look for emotion, insight, truth, vulnerability, all, it was all there. And, you know, one of the key lessons that I learned from it, which I've not been able to shake and kind of explains why most of us can be unhappy, even in our often very privileged lives, is this idea of expectation management. So Mo said this line, which I've never forgotten, which I talk about a lot. He said, you'll be happy. We're happy when our expectations of how life is supposed to be going are met. And therefore, one would deduce that he also means we're unhappy when our expectations of how life is supposed to be going go unmet. And this explains why, if you go back to Botswana, where I was born in Africa, a bowl of rice induces euphoria in many people. But if you go to Mayfair in London, when a billionaire orders a steak and it's not the right medium rare that she or he asked for, visceral anger. 
Their expectations of their life are going unmet. If you think about your relationships with your partner, with work, when your expectations go unmet, if you think about traffic, when you're stuck in traffic in the morning, your expectations of how that trip was going to go. And this, and I remember getting on a, you know, I, I didn't get on a plane other than flying from Africa when I was a baby. I didn't get on a plane until I was 21 years old because we didn't do holidays. So I went after I'd left my first company. It was my first holiday to Thailand. I remember getting on there in economy and being like, oh, what the fuck is going on? Like we're in a flying can. I was, I couldn't believe it. I'm sat there in economy. Just like, I couldn't believe it. Fast forward seven years. I fly 50, 50 weeks a year for social chain, flying around the world in business class and on jets and stuff like that. And I'm getting on business class. I'm throwing my stuff up straight onto my laptop straight away. No joy. It's all gone. And one day I look over and there's this woman holding her Dom Perignon champagne. And, <gasps> and I saw my old self. When did I lose that? She, she was looking through the cat. <gasps> She's talking to the flight attendants, the joy of the experience, putting on a movie, got her legs back, putting the slippers on the pajama. And I'm, I can't work because she's having the time of her life. We're in the same situation, but my expectations have changed. So I'm not experiencing the joy anymore. So how do I manage my expectations through my life, regardless of my external circumstances, so that I can make happiness a choice I make every day, regardless of how well I do? It's this paradox of doing well or getting what you want. Your expectations go up, so your, your happiness can, can stagnate or fall. So expectation management, and it's a simple way to think about it in your partners, in your friends, in your life, in your business, in your relationship with your teams. Manage your expectations. You can manage your happiness. Very nice. That's Mo Gaudat. So I stole that from Mo. So, so I ask you who your best guess is. Oh, fuck. You know what's coming next. <laughs> Worst guess. I'll be honest. We've deleted, and there's something important in this. Well, I, ga I gathered it wouldn't be one that's currently still live. No, yeah, yeah. But you can listen yeah, that's to. True. No, you know what's interesting? If you told everyone the worst one and it was still alive, that's yeah, what they'd go and listen to. Yeah. They'd all go there first yeah. and find out why it was so bad. Yeah. Um, we've deleted s six or seven episodes. Um, one particular one, you would just never believe that we would delete it. They're a very famous YouTuber, maybe the biggest YouTuber in the world right now. Um, conversation just wasn't good. And it's weird because I have this deep belief that when, when we post an episode, people have trust that it will be a good conversation because they trust our team and how we have conversations. So when I have one like that where I go, it will do huge numbers in the short term. We will win today, but it will decay the trust that's central for me posting a name you've never heard before and everyone clicks. So six episodes we've deleted so far. I probably shouldn't name them because they're like, Daily Mail. Oh, no, we won't tell anyone. <laughs> yeah. uh, we, can, we can keep yeah. a secret. Look at this right? guy with the camera. He's going to tell someone. <laughs> <laughs> it was Boris Johnson. <laughs> which, um, which, ep which episodes have the most downloads? Interesting. Interesting. So um, when I think about the best episodes as well, there's one metric I always look at. Not views, not how many people shared from social media. How many views came from WhatsApp? Because that means that someone sent it to a friend or they sent it into their group chat. There's 150 limit in WhatsApp groups. So the most people that could possibly have seen it is 150 maximum, but it's probably one. And so that's my indicator of word of mouth, how it's really moving people to tell a friend. Mo Gauda 
it was something like 30% WhatsApp, which is madness. No episode even comes near half. And that means that shows how much it moved people. And actually, it's funny because at the start of the episode, I say, this is the best podcast I've ever recorded. And still to this day, I think it, I think it probably is. So, yeah. Don't even know what the question was, but that's the answer. Well, most most what, downloads? What episodes have most, most downloaded? downloads? Um, uh, I should know this answer, shouldn't I? I remember there was, there was few. one. Karen Brady what, what on audio. The, Karen Brady. On audio. Mo Gowda, which is surprised, but only on audio. But when you compile YouTube as well, it changes. Molly Lane. I was, that was one. I was trying to remember who it was, because that went like wild. It was all over the media. Yes. That did, that did lo- a lot of views on YouTube because, for obvious reasons, but not on audio as much. Audio is more reliant because the, the platforms are entirely different. YouTube is a platform where things can move virally on the platform. So certain metrics matter more, like watch time, how long they watched for. Or if big news stories come, the news stories will always tag the YouTube channel. It's different. On audio, it's more about how good the conversation was because there's not a social network underneath Spotify. So the only way it moves is by someone clicking that copy button and sharing it with a friend um, other than the charts, but we get almost no traffic from the charts. So um, it's very different platform to platform. Molly May, Jordan Peterson, Liam Payne, the big names are all on YouTube. And then on audio, it's all about the quality conversations. Karen Brady, Simon Sinek, um, Mo Gowda, James Smith. He did really, really well. Um, yeah. Cool. Um, obviously, you know, we're primarily an events company. Yeah. You did... Diary of a CEO live yeah. recently. What, what was the thinking? What was the motivation behind doing it as a live show rather than just doing it as a podcast, recording did, it privately? This is a very risky question. Did anybody come? Oh, you did. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. It, it definitely it means the most to me of all things I've ever created because it was a real personal risk. When I say a personal risk, we're all told that we're something in life. We're all told that we are a social media CEO or we are a this or we are a this. It's usually our job title. It's often our last achievement in life. We get defined by that. You know, and as I left social chain after being a social media CEO for seven years, it was very tempting to go and be a social media CEO. And I had this moment where I thought about what, what my labels were in the eyes of society. Mine was probably entrepreneur, but who am I really? I'm not a social media CEO because social media didn't even exist when I was born. How could that be my passion? A job title isn't your passion. You know, it becomes this social identity, but it's dangerous to hold on to that too tightly. So going back to my first principles, what am I? What do I enjoy? What do I love? I love music. If you come into my house, if you look at my Spotify, I listen to, I think it's crazy numbers of hours of music every year, beat all my friends. I love the theater. If you come into my little office in my, uh, just off my front room, you'll see Hamilton posters. I've been to Hamilton nine times. I've got the poster they've all signed up, the Book of Mormon here. I've got all of the, you know, um, Kanye. Don't love everything about Kanye, got to be honest. Behaves a little bit, you know, sometimes. But what I do love about him is how he also resisted his labels. They said, you're a producer. He goes, no, I can rap. They say, okay, you can be a rapper. He goes, no, no, I'm going to make clothes. I'm going to put on shows. I love people that have resisted their labels. I love the fact Elon's on my wall as well, because Elon did Zip2, which you've probably never heard of, sold that for millions. Then he did PayPal, which you've definitely heard of. Then he thought, you know what, I'm going, to solve, I'm going to go to space and I'm going to send my own electric cars to space. I'm going to solve um, brain issues for paraplegics. I'm going to build tunnels underground. He thought, there's no label on me. And these people, as I found from my podcast, are the happiest amongst us. Those that are able to resist the temptation of slot- slotting into a label 
so that society understands them or so that they can un be understood themselves. So the Diary of Sea Alive was exactly that. It was my experiment. I'm going to write a, a musical show. I'm going to pick all the music. I'm going to have a 40-person gospel choir. I'm going to do everything. I'll tell you about the first principle, principles that created it. I know I wanted to do a live version of the podcast. The obvious thing to do is me go on stage like this and just go, hi, so da 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 I hope nobody's listening, but if you are, keep this to yourselves. Like, but I thought, what are we trying to do here at the first principle? We're trying to communicate a message and make people feel something. That's what the Diary of a Series is all about. So, what are the, so this, is, this is how you build first principles and how you innovate. You just start with a bunch of questions that you know to be true and you reason up from there. So what, moves, what mediums move people? Music. Music is like a syringe into your veins of feeling. Okay, so we'll use music. What else? Visuals. Word, spoken words. How do we combine all of these mediums into something that makes sense and tells a cohesive story with a start, middle, and end? And it ends up in this crazy show with a full band and 40 gospel singers around me and things falling from the, from the ceiling and a big screen where it intermittently cuts into podcast guests saying things. And as they say it, the gospel choir will bring it into music. And it's a crazy experience. You've never seen anything like it before. You also, you've been and you couldn't explain it. <laughs> so that was it. That was my attempt at resisting my labels and reasoning from first principles to create an experience that's different. So and we're doing yeah. it at the Royal Albert Hall this year. Oh, wow. Next year. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that explains a lot, knowing that. You've, you've got um, a lot of merchandise coming out. Um, I see you everywhere. Like, this guy is actually everywhere, isn't he? You've got, right. like, the collaboration with, uh, which company is it? The Huel? watch company. Oh, uh, um, G-Shock. G-Shock. <laughs> you've got Huel. You've got all these different things, yeah. and, and that, that, I guess, explains it. Um, one of the things that I've become really fascinated by, I've, I shared, actually, with, with the group um, just an hour or so ago, is NFTs, and you yeah. invested in a a company called Third Web. Um, how heavy, deep into NFTs are you? Like, what do you own? Yeah, so, um, so I had this really interesting journey. Post leaving the social chain, I just did all of these random things because I was, again, following what I loved. I started DJing. I've been learning to DJ for a year now, doing some shows there. I joined a psychedelics business, the biggest psychedelics business on planet Earth, using psychedelics to cure, cure mental health disorders. We took that company public in June. I worked there full-time for six months, I invested seven figures of my own capital, took it public in June. I was the creative director in one, one of the biggest individual... No, I wasn't. Actually, there's so many Peter Thiel invested. I was a big investor in the company. I did all of these different things to try and, you know, to scratch all of my itches. Um, and then Web3 came into my life. I started feeling the same way I used to feel about social media. I could see a technology in the blockchain that would make life... The same thesis for social media that started social chain would make life... Easier, better, faster, cheaper in some way. Things that we're trying to do right now, like put on events, it could be done easier, better, faster, cheaper using this thing called blockchain technology. And it's, when you see those waves coming into shore, when you see something coming over the horizon, it feel, first you see skepticism. It's a scam. It's bad for the environment. People are spending thousands of pounds on monkey pictures. You hear all of this stuff. I heard the same thing at social media. I remember going into the room with MTV and telling them to start a social media page and them laughing. So we're going to post things online and people are going to share them and they can comment on what we've said. And if you go back another couple of decades, you'll hear about how people talked about the internet, the skepticism. I remember watching this news broadcast of these, these anchors, which is on YouTube, and they're trying to explain what the internet is. They go, what the hell is the internet? What's that at symbol? Is that me? What's that? It's a board, a digital. I don't think it will catch on. And this is going to happen over and over again in your life. Things are going to change. The tectonic plates in which we conduct business is going to change. 
And there's two types of people. The people that lean in, regardless, regardless of the intimidation and how it will sound like cuckoo. They lean in, or the people that lean out. And because of the social media wave that I managed to ride in, my, I've said to myself, regardless of how crazy it sounds, lean in. So started speaking to some friends in San Francisco who I'd worked with 10 years ago from Bebo. You probably, some of you know, will know Bebo. I flew to Bebo when I was 20 years old. Michael Birch, the founder, said, we're going to bring it back. He sold it for 800 million. He bought it back for one. I worked with a team out there on Bebo and um, I hit them up and said, what are, you, what are you thinking about Web3? We co-founded Third Web together, um, went on a bit of a journey there and then raised 5 million from Gary Vaynerchuk, um, from Mark Cuban, from big entrepreneurs in our first seed round. And then last week, we raised $24 million from Shopify, from Coinbase, KT Hahn Ventures, Polygon. Uh, the company's now valued at $160 million, And it's the infrastructure layer so that anybody can build Web3 applications in just a couple of clicks. Um, team's based in San Francisco and New York. And then there's three of us in, in London. And I'm a co-founder. I'm the, technically, I'm the CMO. And my, my partner's the CEO, and he's the co-founder. Yeah. What do you think about um, NFTs? What do you see the future as? Gary Vaynerchuk yeah. talks about... 90, I don't know, is it 95 or 99 percent of the projects are going to go to zero? Yeah, because there's no substance behind them, yeah. and people are playing the short game. Um, he says, and I agree, that right now the value is in the utility yeah. rather than yeah. the actual image or JPEG or whatever it is you're purchasing. What, what, what do you feel about that? It's exact, it's exact same. Um, there, there's always hype and euphoria at the start of these industries, that's why they call it the dot com boom. Because these companies that had no substance to them got copious amounts of capital. And then when the markets came down, they evaporated. But not all of them. Pets.com evaporated, but Amazon stayed. And Amazon's done pretty well. right? That came out of the same era. And the same thing happened in social media. The same thing will happen now. Huge initial euphoria. Lots of people putting a lot of money at high valuations. But underneath there, you will have projects and you will have teams that are offering real value. And the thing you look for, and the th well, a good litmus test for me is like, would this have been valuable in, in Web 2? If this idea existed in Web 2, would it have offered value? And what is the value? You can't say, and I've got to be, you can't say the value is just the art. You can't say that, right? Because not many artists made it in Web 2. Very few. So there, there has to be something else. And what Gary's done with vFriends is smart. My first conversation with Gary two years ago before Third World was actually, Gary, I want to create something called Access Packs. It's a very simple idea where if you're Elon Musk, and Elon Musk did this, he raffled off a seat in his spacecraft, what you can do is um, create a Pokemon card style pack. Everyone can you know, buy it maybe for one pound or get it for free, just putting their email address in. And then you all open it at random, like a, a pack, and it gives you randomized access to celebrities or creators. Kylie Jenner could have dropped her own access pack. 10 of you win dinner with her. 100 of you get to come to her gig. 1,000 of you might just win some merch or something. And that, when we built that, we realized we'd actually built the infrastructure for anyone to build their own app. And so we deleted that and built ThirdWeb, which is the, the base layer, so that you can build your own access pack on ThirdWeb in three clicks. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I wish I'd known about ThirdWeb when <laughs> we set up yeah. our NFT. Because, <laughs> yeah. yeah, we went through the painstaking process of outsourcing the tech. Oh, really? I don't understand yeah. the tech. I'd be an idiot yeah. to try and work it out. So I outsourced the tech when... That's exactly why we created Third Web. I think that's yeah. why it's a genius idea because mm. as I shared in the session before, in my opinion, um, all tickets to music concerts, sporting events, business events, you name it, are going to come uh, in the future in the form of an NFT. The problem is that there isn't an easy way for people to get in and create their own projects. And I think that's why Third Web's 
genius and I'm just annoyed I, that I didn't know uh, about it sooner. I would just say lean in. Like, I'm not going to be able to explain the entire blockchain and all the possibilities, but what I can do is give you a philosophy so that you can get that information. And that philosophy is being be, be curious and lean in. There'll be lots of skepticism. But underneath there, there is a technology called the blockchain, which is going to tear apart industries, insurance, logistics, events, the art world. It's all going to be taught to one of social media communities, like with Gary, and he's got his, all of his community members have a, an NFT now. It's going to tear everything apart, so lean in. We've got a bit of time, and I'd like to give you all a special opportunity to ask some questions. What question would you like to put forward to Stephen Bartlett? And I'm going to cheat because the first question is going to my son. Zach, oh. where are you? Where is he? There he is. <laughs> um, can we get a microphone? Go on, Zach. Up. Um, knowing what you know now, what would you ask your 13-year-old self? What would you tell your 13-year-old self? I would tell him to always put a call to action in your YouTube. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no um, for me, so I wish I, wish I had been given, because I think when I talk about being you know, confident and building that evidence, I just wish that... You know, I still had doubt, right? So I still had like 30, 40% doubt. And that doubt is just a resistance of where you're going anyway. It slows you down. It makes you procrastinate. And, and, it, and it makes you second guess things. And in the worst cases, when the, when the doubt becomes over 50% for most people, then you just don't do it and you go do something anyway. My doubt slowed me down for sure. I wish that my school had allowed me to lean into the thing that I was clearly innately passionate about, which was business and psychology. I couldn't push the pram around the school anymore with the plastic baby in, in my health and social care class. I couldn't come to the math class. I still can't do math well. I couldn't go to biology or physics, but I was obsessed about this thing. I wish someone had said to me, go all in. Like Jimmy Carr said to me, he said, we don't need anyone, any more people that are shit at physics. He says, all that, you know, we, <laughs> he goes, I wish I'd gone all in as early as I possibly could on learning the thing that I love the most, because it doesn't really matter over the long term, whether it's a career or not. If you, if you master it, it's a career. You can make millions selling pen lids if you go all in. And so that's what it would have been. I would have, I would have not tried to, I would have listened less. I would have had more conviction and I would have gone all in even sooner than I did um, on business. I would have started my first proper business earlier and it's just conviction. Conviction is an amazing thing because it pushes you through failure and then failure is feedback and you, you, know, you build belief from that feedback. So I would have gone all in sooner. What's your view on the education system, the school system? It's interesting. Because it... Well, it wasn't that bad a question, was it? Um, <laughs> well, because from what I'm hearing, it's like some of those instincts and desires were subdued mm. by the system 100%. that you were educated in. What do, you, what do you think about that? One thing that's really interesting is people think that I don't like education. I don't like school as an institution. I love education. I've always loved education. I was stealing the psychology book and taking it home because it was my favorite book. And Miss Lani goes, where are you going with that? I'm going to read it on the weekend. But I got expelled for not coming to school because I couldn't go to the, the other classes which, where I was falling asleep on the desk. I love education. But the system, it's the old analogy of trying to get a fish to climb a tree, was for me a fish climbing a tree. 
And having spent time undercover in schools, pretending to be a teacher, some of you might have seen on Channel 4 a couple of years ago in the program Secret Teacher, I finally figured out why the system is broken. Teachers are great people. I used to blame teachers. Teachers are not the problem. The system and its incentives. It's the same in every company. Look at the incentives. I sat with the head teacher. He goes, I, he goes oh, we've had to buy the footballs and the, the pencils and crayons ourselves as teachers this year. I go, why is that? He goes, well, we didn't get many students come this year. I go, why does that matter? He goes, well, the more students we get, the more money we get from the government. I go, so how, how are you deciding, how do parents decide if they should bring their kids here? Well, the league tables. And what are the league table, t- tables determined by? Grades. Ah. Oh. So my teacher was forcing me to get a C in something I hated because if not, she basically would have to pay for stuff around this school and the school would have no money. The system is designed not with the interest of the child at heart, but with the interest of monetization. It's just a business with customers. And so, yeah. So what, what do we do about it? What's the Change solution? the incentives. Incentivize, you know, they do it in some European countries, incentivize the kids' happiness, how, much, how engaged they are with the subjects that they're learning. You've got, to, you've got to change the incentives. The same in companies, because you as CEOs and you as founders will often say to your teams, right, innovate. Let's innovate. (laughs) And then you look at the incentives of your organization. They're incentivized to do their current job and to keep doing it. They're actually disincentivized to fail. So if you want to become an innovative company, you have to incentivize failure. So my team on Monday sent me a report saying how many times we experimented this week. When we promote someone, when I write the letter to the whole team saying why Jenny was promoted, I say all the times she experimented and failed. We used to reward it at Social Chain. And so on Fridays, Don Perignon and the trophy for this person was, you know, our values first, fearless, never changing. This person did the most experiments. And you also celebrate when the experiment's done, not based on the outcome of the experiment, because nobody could control that. Did we do the sprint, build the thing and ship it? Not did it go well. Can't punish people for things they can't control. And so it's changing the incentives of a system and you'll change the behavior. You won't change it with just words alone. You might get short-term compliance. You won't get a behavior change. Love it. Love it. Right. I haven't had them all raise their hands oh, that quickly in two days. <laughs> and I've constantly been asking to do it. Um, Tia, uh, we got a microphone here. Dylan, to Ellie Mackay in the hat, please. Great hat. Like my old one. By the way, that's the key to getting a question <laughs> asked. Wear a great hat. We're coming Hi, to you Stephen. next. Hello. Um, I'm Ellie McKay from the On Your Mission podcast. We're currently number three in the charts. Nice. Now, I know how incredibly busy you are. So what needs to happen for this interview to take place? What was the question I did? We've got um, a podcast, On a Mission, yeah. number three. Yeah. Um, what needs to happen to get on it? I've seen On a Mission somewhere. Where have I seen? Right. Um, oh, what mate, you, what episode are you on? What's 130? My favorite number is three. So if you get to three, 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 then I'll come on. Or, or he's playing with incentives. <laughs> he's thinking about incentives. <laughs> Should we play a game? Oh yeah. Okay, come up here. Come up here. <laughs> That's you, yeah. Bottle flip. I'll come on. I'll come on now, right? I'll move things around and come on now. 
does everybody know the game bottle flip? Okay, so you, all you've got to do is you've got to flip the bottle like this. All you've got to do. And if you land it when it's on this side, this side here, five attempts, then I'll come, I'll, yeah, and you come record it in my studio and we, you can spend the day with our team. Just five. Go lower, go lower. Go nice and low. We do this at Social Chain, it's so. Uh, drink the Zach, come here, come here, come here. I'd hold it on one of the ends like this, and then try and like... Ellie, hold it on the end. put Zach into that. He's got way more chance. Okay, Zach's on, been substituted in. We've got a professional. Ooh. Okay, five attempts, four left. Well done, mate. Class. You're welcome. Welcome, mate. Okay, I'll come on your podcast. Come hang out with us. Can, I, can you give her my number? Huh? You can give her my number? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I'll hook you up. Um, <laughs> See, remember, the, the question is never how, the question is who. Yeah. And he doesn't do much else other than practice that. <laughs> and who, who knew that was ever going to be a valuable skill? That was amazing. The question now should be, how is Ellie going to pay a reward yeah. Zach? <laughs> right. Next question. We're never going to get through these questions. No more bottles. Uh, let's go. Who, where are the microphones? Let's go. This lady here in the. Yeah, I'll come to the hat. I'll come to the hat. Stephen's going. Don't go to the hat. I might have to be like, <laughs> speaking at her event. No more bottles. Or, yeah, <laughs> get some water. We need more bottles. Yes. What's your name? What's your question? Hi, Stephen. Uh, my name is Mariella, and I'm also a first-generation immigrant. Um, taught myself English back in Brazil because I was on a mission. And my question to you is, nature versus nurture, what get, got you where you are now? Definitely both. Undeniably both. And I've learned that again from the podcast. I think we all have a bit of a bias towards thinking that um, it's all nurture. Um, it's definitely a two-way relationship with the two. We, some of us can be predisposed, which means we can we can be born with a um, a bit of a sort of a, a bias one way, so, you know, so you could get, um, you could be put in the situ same situation as someone else, but because of your genetic predisposition, you'll react differently. Your stress tolerance could be less. It's been proved by science a lot, but also when you look at uh, identical twins, and there's been lots of movies and documentaries on this, the psychology isn't far apart, regardless of how the nurture changes. You've some of you have seen three identical strangers, which is a really unbelievable, if you've not seen that, I mean, it's, it's going to be goosebumps thinking about it. Three identical twin brothers separated at birth as part of an experiment, put into three different types of household, one very affluent. And you see how their outcomes are, are very, very different, but the similarities are still there, regardless of the fact that they've never met. And it shows that it's both. One of them ends up killing himself. It, you know, it's really a gr gr awful experiment, but it's, it's so, so definitely both. And understanding your... your your nurture and your nature is so important if you want to um, 
you want to progress. There's and what no... would you say to someone that is hung up in the lack of nature, nurture and keep t telling and retelling their self story for where, where they're not because they didn't have the nurture? Yeah, so like, I think there's no self, I said this on my Instagram one time, because um, there was a guy that used to come into my office and he read all the books. He was the personal development king. He read all the books and listened to all of the podcasts, but he was the only employee that I had in my team that could not change their behavior and that I'd always get complaints about. How is that possible? He knows more than anyone else. He walks past my desk on Monday and tells me about this podcast and that and this amazing thing that Nike did 17 years ago and this. You know, he holds personal development courses in my company. And it taught me a lesson, which is there's no self-development without self-awareness. And, and there's no self-development without self-awareness. And you can read as many books as you like, but if you can't read yourself, you'll never learn a thing. And so, Thank you uh, so much. Thank you. Lady with the amazing hat. <laughs> Hi, Stephen. Um, so, myself and Louise, my business partner, um, both grew up um, quite traumatic childhoods. Um, both met on a training course and had £20 between us. It's been quite a rough ride, but between the two of us, we've now built a multi-million pound which still feels really strange to say. Um, we have just created a product that we know is going to absolutely take the industry by storm. What we found is most of our successes grew through being absolutely fearless. So constantly sharing our story and just not giving a shit what people think. So my question is, and I'm being fearless again, what would it take us to Bottle have you... flip, come on down. <laughs> No, no, I'm joking, I'm joking. What would it take for us to have you to listen to what our product idea is going to be? Because we are 100% guaranteed. To listen guaranteed. to the idea? I'll give you my number. And to invest into it. <laughs> and make our dreams come true. Um, no. I'll give you my phone number. You can, you can send me some messages about it. Oh, no! but, um, yeah? Do I have, to do, the bottle? Do I have yeah? to do the bottle flip for it? All right. We'll, 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 yeah. Make sure, we'll make sure that we connect. Yeah, yeah just make Is sure it a deal? 100%. Promise. I swear, I promise. <gasps> I swear. Right. I don't promise to invest. I just want to be clear. Right. <laughs> I don't know what it is yet, but. Right. No more questions Thank about you. going Thank on the you. podcast well or checking out your offer. Let's, um, who's got a question gonna that's going to add some value to the audience as a whole? Please. Yeah. I'm trusting you. Dr. Claire, I'm trusting you. <laughs> Have you got a podcast? <laughs> Hi. Hello. I'm Dr. Claire. You interviewed a friend of mine, Dr. Julie, on your podcast. Oh, yeah, the She's best. doing phenomenally well on Instagram, YouTube, all over. What advice would you give to those of us who are starting out trying to build our social media presence? Yeah, so... Um, so... <laughs> People like that question. <laughs> So in these moments, like tactics don't matter because the tactics change. You know that. The, the top um, social media apps update have about 10 updates a week. So spending time on tactics would probably be like giving you a fishing rod. No, would be giving you a fish when you need a fishing rod. And the fishing rod is a philosophy for it. That's all my team obsess about. It's all we've ever obsessed about. The philosophy 
right, is it's what I said earlier on. The reason why Julie, Dr. Julie is successful is because she started, which is the hardest thing to do. Most people never do that. Getting over that hurdle because all of the I need a perfect moment bullshit we tell ourselves stands in our way is starting bad. Most, no one wants to start bad. I remember my first quotes and stuff that I used to write on my Instagram. It was like, uh, work hard, do your best. <laughs> it was, it was embarrassing. And my friends would make the jokes and you'd see, you know, hear about this person slagging you off behind your back. But I carried on, I persisted. And what happens when you persist is you learn the lessons if you're willing to listen. So you, look, you go, okay, that didn't do so well. I look at the back end metrics, that post, oh, more people shared that one. That's interesting. And my brain now is a bank of feedback from all of that continual failure. I failed at social media. So to, to give you an idea of that slow versus fast thing, I posted 100 th- um, 1,000 posts on my Instagram and I had 10,000 followers. If you fast forward, I got 300,000 followers in 10 posts when I hit 2 million followers. I got, say that again, I posted 1,000 posts on Instagram and hit 10K followers. When I hit 2 million, it was 10 posts that contributed. When I hit 2, 2 million, it was 10 posts that contributed to the 2 million, right? And it was all because of learning. It was the, five, the first five years of just doing it, learning, 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 learning. And it's consistency. No one wants to do that. No one wants to start bad and they, no one wants to be consistent. No one wants to show up every day and obsess about the small stuff. That is the only thing that if you like, no social media tips, I can tell you about every algorithm. I can tell you how to multiply your engagement on LinkedIn because the algorithm values engagement. So if you just end your LinkedIn posts with a question, your reach will go up 300%. I can tell you all of that stuff, but it doesn't matter. I learned that from consistency and feedback. So if you want to be a master like Gary Vaynerchuk is, or like many people think I am on social media, do what we do, which is be really consistent um, and look at every metric and then show up the next day and be slightly less bad. <laughs> so, Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Dan. Yes, he says. There we go. I thought I had a good question. What would it... No, I'm only joking. <laughs> um, so we talk about fulfillment and stuff like that. Yeah. And when you die, hopefully many, many years away... What could you look back on and think, what would I want to fulfill? What would I want to do or what would I do to make me feel fulfilled in life? Like, what's your one goal that you want to do before you die? Uh, I think it's, I think it's, um, I've said this at the the end of a few podcasts in a row now about this ingredients list. Because I used to think that happiness was something I maybe, you know, when I was young in my career, I used to think it was money. But now I view it as this, this recipe. And like a recipe, you need a variety of ingredients in certain quantities if one egg is missing, the recipe doesn't work. And I think of my fulfillment and happiness as exactly that. There's a, it's, a recipe, it's a recipe with ingredients on it, and they need to be in the right quantity. So it's all about balance for me. For me, I need the right, keyword, amount of meaningful struggle. All those words are super important. Meaningful means that if I achieve the goal, it's worth it for me. Struggle is important as well, a word that people don't typically choose. But watch what happens when people don't have struggle. They get so disorientated, they lose a sense of purpose, depression, anxiety, all of those things. And so people don't kill themselves as well because of they're hungry or thirsty, but they kill themselves when they lack purpose in their lives. It should be, as Simon said to me this week, it should be on the bottom level of our Maslowian hierarchy of needs. Um, it's balance in my life. That's the thing I'm seeking now, which means getting connection from my relationships with my family, my, my girlfriend, getting the struggle that I need from my career and a sense of meaningful purpose, um, and getting, keep it, getting and keeping that balance right. We all need forward motion as well. That's why, you know, I said earlier on about one foot out of your comfort zone is growth. 
but one foot out of your comfort zone is also happiness. When Daniel Pink came on my podcast, a motivation expert, and he says when people are too far inside their zone of comfort, when things are too easy in their life, they lose motivation. It's why when you do a crossword, you're looking for a harder one next time. But when you play a game, it goes up in levels. That's to keep you engaged and motivated. If something is too out far, far outside your comfort zone, a game is too difficult, you also lose motivation because you're intimidated. You don't feel equipped, so you end up procrastinating. Like when you have that essay to do, you end up doing the washing up because you're not psychologically prepared for the task. One foot outside your comfort zone for the rest of your life, you're, I think you'll have a fulfilled life. That's what I'm trying to do, balance. We're going to go one more. Nick Feeney. Last one again. Were you, were you last one last time? Yeah. There's a pattern occurring here. Well, firstly, I'd like to give you a nod to your fashion sense. <laughs> so, um, massive arms. <laughs> so I would like to say, um, you've talked a lot about consistency and things like that, and uh, you are clearly a detail man. But to do that and to have a busy life... What are your habits that are non-negotiable during the morning, morning routine, or what do you do to make sure that you stick to these things? So, good question, great question. Um, the first thing is that I don't prescribe to the, what you read in the self-help books about like early morning routine, yoga, meditation. Well, I'm so messy and unorganized, you wouldn't believe it. I don't set an alarm when I wake up. When I wake up is when I wake up. You know, um, I'm, I'm a mess. I break every rule that I've read in all of these books about these successful people. It's all... Yeah. No, I yeah, it's true. Yeah. There's, no, there's none of this, you know, it's just really a mess, which, which makes me surprised when I read about successful people. Um, but what I will say, one of the most important things that I've come to learn, non-negotiable, sleep. Amen. That's why I said it's set an alarm. To tell my assistant there's nothing before 11. And if I wake up at 9, 8, or 11, that's fine. My body's my, the first thing, the foundation of my day is my sleep. As I've got, oh, I didn't know this when I was younger. As I've got older and I started wearing my whoop and I'd see how much REM sleep I'd have and how much deep sleep I'd have and then I'd correlate it to my mood and my performance, I'd go, oh my God, there's a 50% difference in my performance if I just stayed in bed for one hour longer. It's the foundation of my mood, my day, my performance, my success, everything. Then you look at the studies around your health and go, wait, we're gonna, I'm going to live 10 years less because of sleep? My chance of heart disease, cancer is through the roof because I haven't slept, because I've been trying to be some hustle porn star, and I've, all I've cared about is my career, I'm going to lose it all potentially when my kids are at a prime age because I didn't sleep. I didn't think that was a priority. So sleep has become my non-negotiable. And the other one is exercise. So in the last two years, I've gone to the gym on 90% of days. And we track it with my friends in a, in a group called Fitness Blockchain, funnily enough. I post it sometimes in my close friend story. I go to the gym seven times a week. I don't you know, think you shouldn't do that. No, sometimes you can go to the gym and cycle or you can do something slow or something that's not so you know, extreme or maybe a swim. But I go every single day. And I've not been today, so I'll be at third space for two hours today. I go every single day. That's a new thing. Didn't do that when I was at Social Chain. I, once I left, once the pandemic happened and I realized that there's this tectonic plate that sits underneath all of our lives because I saw what happened to the world and everything I care about rests on that tectonic plate. And that's my health. Without it, fuck my, Pablo, my dog. That relationship is gone. Fuck my social chain, third web flight story, a Tyler. Fuck everything I've ever done. If that tectonic plate shakes, and as a 20-year-old, I didn't even know it was there, when it shakes, everything is gone. 
So that, why, isn't, why isn't that my first priority if everything is dependent on it? It makes no sense. So that from when the pandemic happened, it was March, I, I had that revelation and I thought from now on, my health comes first. So yeah, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in showing some appreciation for Stephen Bartlett. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening to Empire Builders. Please subscribe, leave us a review on Apple, on Spotify, on other platforms, and uh, share the love, tell your friends. Remember, till next time, the more you connect, the more you collect.